0: Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? It's fucking cold outside. Minus 30, but I'm gutting it out. The studio's warm enough. Probably about minus 20 in here. The beers are slushy. The cigarettes are stale. So let's get to it. As you know, I recently had a part in making the baby happen. This baby cries a lot, like babies do. He's letting us know that he's a baby at all hours of the day and night. This is my second child, the first who you hear every episode in the beginning asking if we can talk about something else, has been sharing his bed with me some nights as of late. Our house is like a hut. There aren't many designated areas. We share. We live together, much like prehistoric families did, I imagine, in their caves. It's not a modern setup, but I like to think it's natural and a place full of love and ease. But this baby, Charlie, is what he calls himself. He's a little fussy, as they say, and there have been many nights where I've been up for long periods attempting to chill him out, bouncing on an exercise ball, repeating the chorus of songs I can't quite recall as I pace the house, just trying to find the right energy to pass on to him or something, trying to find the sweet spot, I guess. There are moments where I think to myself, this baby's lucky it's me holding him and not some worn-out drug addict, because... If I'm this close to the red zone, for sure someone less patient is spiking the ball once they cross the line, right? But another deep thought I've been mulling is that this baby's lucky it isn't wartime and the Nazis are upstairs, because seriously, I'd have to snuff him out. It's like an alarm going off. I brought these thoughts up to my lady, and surprisingly, she simply agreed. Yeah, yeah, he is lucky that that's not the case. Now, you know, hand him over to me, please. Christ. <laughs> so my point... Uh, basically is that Charlie, who I guess I should make clear is a great guy, a clear-eyed angel full of smiles, goo and gagas for the most part, has me thinking about all those other babies, past and present, who have or have had their parents up late at night, and the response isn't or wasn't an understanding one. I'm concerned for those babies. I'm also amazed through my research for this episode that families like the ones in, say, the Ukraine during the mass Stalin-imposed famine of the early 20th century were able to continue raising children and persevere despite ridiculous stress millions of deaths, families devolving into cannibalistic sects who would kidnap and consume the neighbor's toddler for survival, those who resisted this macabre option reduced to eating weeds and dirt to fill their bellies. I'm amazed, amazed by their resolve, and ashamed by how soft I am in comparison, annoyed that I have to bounce a baby rather than scroll to follow to Trump's latest tweet. During this whole transition with our new edition, my research and writing time has been relegated to the wee hours and the horrible topics I cover have been provoking some incredible dreams, mostly nightmares. To be absolutely honest, things have even become a little spooky. My six-year-old son, who, if you knew him, isn't the type to make anything up for attention, woke up with a start the other night and scared the living hell out of me by what he said. I was asleep beside him and jumped awake as well when he scrambled to a sitting position and gripped my arm. He said, quote, That was weird. I asked him, what was weird? And he said, there was a little girl standing over there. Now, I don't walk around telling people I believe in ghosts, but if you ask my fiancée what my stance is, her answer would be a sharp laugh followed by an eye roll. She's not sure if my mind's open or uh, or just soft. So needless to say, (laughs) I didn't have much support on what happened here, but I, I was petrified by what my son told me. I've never had a paranormal encounter that couldn't be explained away. I've worked a lot of graveyard shifts in homes where people were dying and had died in, so there has been plenty of opportunity. The one home's doorbell would ring in the middle of the night sometimes, and uh, nobody would be there which would starch me at the entrance after opening it to find an empty access ramp and nothing but dead, heavy silence and pitch darkness beyond the porch light's reach, which should have come on automatically if anyone had been out there by the fucking way. But, of course, that could have been a faulty doorbell, even though we had a resident who was obsessed with doorbells and had recently passed away when this started happening. My young friend from the Kevorkian episode, in fact. I worked some night shifts after he passed away as my position there had evaporated with his death. Anyways, there is more, but like I said, nothing concrete, so I'll pencil myself in as skeptical. As you eyeball me skeptically, no doubt. So, my son tells me there was a girl standing in the corner. We'd fallen asleep on the living room couch together, the glow from the Christmas tree the only light source in the room. I ask him, is she there now? To which he responds in his sweet little voice, Nope, she disappeared. I... I take a moment to gather myself, then, trying not to betray my fear, ask, What does she look like? And he says, She was just a little girl. I ask, What was she doing? And he says, Just looking at us. The night after this incident, I was up writing in the quiet that's available here around 2 a.m., when, without any conscious provocation, the hairs of my neck and arms stood up, and I was overcome with fear. We all know this feeling. It happens from time to time. But the sensation intensified on me, and I was forced to stand and literally attempt to shake it off. I walked to a mirror in our living room that was, again, lit only by the glow from the Christmas tree, and looked at my reflection in amusement and curiosity, and I guess almost panic, as the feeling continued to grip me. An intense, creeped-out sensation, like a wolf was at the mouth of our cave. Now, this next part is where half of you will roll your eyes and the other half will fix them. I haven't shared this with anyone yet, but I've come this far, so you know, why not here in front of 8,000 listeners? Uh, not to fucking brag, but... Shit! Advertising on the fucking way, bitch! <laughs> so... um, I felt like something was in the room with me. A presence, if you will humor it. So utilizing my education from ghost hunting shows, I decided to speak up. I said, quote, Whatever you are, I want you to leave. And just like that, it stopped. Like a switch being flipped. The hair on my arms and neck lost static. The goosebumps smoothed. And my panic subsided. I'm not saying a ghost was responsible. I'm just saying. This happened. Exhausted, I checked on my six-year-old and went to my own bed. It was a windy night, and I dozed off shortly after laying down beside the mercifully sleeping mother and baby who run this joint these days and promptly had one of the most vivid nightmares of my life. Dusk. I'm in a deserted park that's surrounded by dense woods. It feels like the clearing has been stamped into the forest like an upscale crop circle. The grass isn't grass, rather patches of weeds and... The playground equipment is weird and dangerous looking. It's all metal and the yellowish paint has peeled for most of it. Rust is the main veneer. There's a spaceship in one of those metal merry-go-rounds that everyone misses, especially dentists. I realize that I must be in the Ukraine or Russia or something. I'm aware that I'm dreaming and even think to myself, is this Chernobyl? There's a boy with me, about the same age as my eldest son. I feel like he is my son, but he isn't. This boy's blonde. He asked me to count, so I cover my eyes and begin. When I reach 20, I intend to stop, but I can't. The numbers just keep coming out of my mouth. I try to pull my hands from my face, but I can't do that either. It isn't my body, I realize. I'm just on board, a passenger. The man counts to 50. 50. I haven't looked into this, but maybe one of my many Eastern European listeners can help. Do you guys count to 50 when you're playing hide-and-seek? If so, that's way too fucking much. It's near dark now. The boy's nowhere in sight. Personally, I peek when playing hide-and-seek with my kid, but not this guy. We yell out something. It feels like ready or not, but it doesn't sound like it. I know what it was that I was yelling, actually, but it might ruin the creep factor. I was yelling out, RICOLA from those old Swiss cough draft commercials. I, or we, this man I was co-piloting or whatever, searched the playground thoroughly. No blond haired boy. Panic begins to well up as there is nowhere else to hide except the dense wood. And now it is dark. We begin walking the perimeter, looking for an exit path, but there is none. The trees are so tightly packed that we couldn't even venture into them. We continue screaming, "Ricola!" Maniacally, over and over again, as we do endless laps around the edge of the park or hands searching for an exit and finding only tightly packed tree trunks. Then the dream flipped, like dreams tend to do, and I was suddenly out in the woods. I realized I was a police officer, and I was in the middle of an interrogation. A wild-haired yet balding man sat on the ground in front of me. He was cuffed. It was daylight now. There was a dilapidated cabin and a shantytown feel to the spot. The man must have lived here, out in the middle of the woods. I focused on what he was saying to me, We weren't in Eastern Europe anymore. He spoke with a North American accent, but whatever. I'm not going to try to make much sense of a dream. We were in the same spot, however. I could sense this. We were in the woods beyond the imprisoned Chernobyl-esque playground. The man spoke methodically and without error. His eyes betrayed his matter-of-fact outward demeanor. They were wild and hurt to look directly into. But again, I was helpless to look away. He was pontificating about cannibalism, about how it makes one feel slow and isn't something to be enjoyed in excess. Rather, human flesh was to be savored like a delicacy that it exhilarates like a sip of aged wine or nibble of aged cheese. It was at this point that I experienced flashes of crime scene photos, the kind of pictures true crime authors place in the middle of their books and most of us guiltily peek at throughout reading to heighten the horror. There was a bird's-eye photo of the circle in the forest with the rusted metal playground. It had a slightly highlighted X marking a spot on the perimeter. This, I understood, was where the boy managed to leave the park to hide. A red line weaved along a trail to another X that marked the clearing I now stood in. I immediately knew that the boy had been taken along this route by the feral-eyed man, while I, against my will, counted to fifty. Then the images sped up, among them the blond haired boy lying naked in a tent, Flesh missing from his ear, neck, and parts of his leg. The interior of the cabin. A wood stove with a dirty cast iron pan on top. Heaps of bloody clothes. A naked woman and some leaves outside the dingy window. Her face exposed as if trying to get away from what had been done to its body. The eyes missing. I spiraled back to the interrogation. The man explained how he could continue to hurt someone who begged for him to stop. He said that that was the point. The thrill of it all and that without their pleas, he would grow bored of the whole thing. He would have to find something else that made him feel alive. Then I calmly woke up. No start or shout. I just opened my eyes. It was just after 3 a.m. The wind still howled outside, and I got up, careful not to wake the baby. No fear in me, just a heavy melancholy. I checked my son's room. He was still there. Blinds were intact over the secured windows. Checked on to make sure that someone hadn't replaced him with a Alcatraz doll. <laughs> I went to the washroom, eyeing the lock on the back door as I passed it. Locked. I unlocked and relocked it like the crazy person I'd become. As I returned from the washroom and headed to the fridge for water, I started to realize what had happened. I'd had a conversation with Andre Chicatillo, an Americanized version of him, but those eyes had given him away. It was like a Stephen King character I'd interacted with. Walter O'Dim, the man in black. A shapeshifter. That kind of evil can't be one man's, I realized. That kind of evil is immortal and moves through the world like an animated puddle of oil, placing itself in front of those of us who have checked out and are looking deep into our own minds for a way to feel in control, eventually concluding that the only way is to slip and allow the oily darkness to begin suggesting things. I went to my son's room and crawled into bed with him. The wind slammed into the wall beside me, the ceiling creaked above i closed my eyes then after a couple minutes of choppy internal debate forced myself to check the corner of the room no little girl i closed my eyes again and after a while was relieved to feel myself begin to drift then against everything i wanted or wished to now share my hackles began to raise welcome to dark topic i'm your host jack luna this is part one of a well-marinated offering. The victim count is overwhelming, so I gave in and decided to focus on the man who, in my opinion, is the worst serial killer in history. I don't like it either, but trust me, it won't be glamorous. This is S2E7, Chickatilla, the Red Ripper, part one. Andre Chikatilo was born October 16, 1936. Unfortunately for him, he showed up in the middle of a man-made famine that heavily affected his small village of the Ukraine. Stalin, the Soviet dictator of the time, had spun into reality the idea of collectivism, and Chikatilo's family, who worked their small farm to survive, were forced to begin handing over its yields to the communist regime. The Ukraine, which was considered to be the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, suffered millions of deaths during this period known as the Holodomor, loosely translated to mean death or murder by hunger. At the end of his life, when he finally had the attention of his people, albeit for gruesome rather than the glorious reasons he dreamt of early on, Chikatilo would look back after being asked by an over-exuberant reporter the Soviet Union was falling by then and the press were just happy to be asking questions, I guess, if he liked kindness as a child. His answer. wo I don't know if I liked it. No one was kind to me. I grew up during war. No one was kind. We only wanted to survive. No one was kind. I was from Ukraine. Soviets organized hunger during those years. Twenty million people dead. My older brother, Stepan, four years old, was caught by cannibals and eaten during the mass starvation. My mom always told me, "'Don't get out of our yard. Stepan was eaten, and they will eat you too. "'We ate a piece of black bread sometimes, "'some weeds if Mum would steal them from Soviets for us. "'We were sitting at home, hungry, and crying.'" Young Andrea's father was sent off to war when World War II heated up and did not return for some time as he was taken prisoner. Meanwhile, back home, his small family suffered their hut being burned down by Nazis more than a few of which raped Andrea's mother in front of him, causing her eventually to become pregnant. Cicatillo recalled this period later as well, his experience from the age of five to eight. Quote, From 1941 to 1944, I remember the horrors of my childhood years, when we hid from bombings and shootings in cellars and open pits. We sat in ditches, hungry and cold, fleeing under the whistle of bullets. I remember our burning hut and the savagery of the fascists, in September of 1944, I went to school hungry and in tatters. End quote. When Andrea's father finally returned, broken, beaten, and disgraced, as POWs were considered cowards and possible traitors in Soviet culture, he likely took in the sight of his new daughter with weary skepticism, since the mass certainly didn't add up, but still accepted her as his own. He had larger concerns, seeing that he was suffering from tuberculosis and could do nothing but lay around and cough up blood for some time. The Nazis had worked him hard in their minds until the Americans set him free. Soon after returning, he was sent to work in the logging areas for his home nation. A miserable existence. Young Andrea did the only thing he could to escape the hell he'd been born to. He continued to grow up. He was worse off than many kids at school as he came from the country where times weren't just lean, they were emaciated. He recalled passing out often in class from hunger. No breakfast clubs in the elementary schools of the USSR, I presume. Chicatillo would later claim to have been plagued by headaches, something he blamed on poor eyesight and trying to read blackboards, but also as a result of being born with water on the brain, or hydrocephalus, a condition that often leads to physical or cognitive impairments, though by all accounts Andrea would grow to be strong and intelligent. His recalled weaknesses early on were of wetting the cot he shared with his mother quite frequently, which provoked beatings and insults, often doled out publicly. And As he grew into puberty, Andrea discovered that he could not perform sexually, even for himself. Chikatilo painted a portrait of his younger version, having been a victim of bullying and abuse due to his shyness and appearance, but former classmates recall him having been a force by the time he finished school, even dubbing him Andrea the Strong as a result. Chikatilo first used his newfound strength on a friend of his sister's who came calling one day. This incident would be the first indication to even Chikatilo himself that he may not have been wired right. The girl, who was 13 four years Tricotillo's junior at the time, agreed to go for a walk with Andrea, and once they reached the secluded spot, he tackled her, intent on having his way. But as soon as he had controlled the squirming young girl, he ejaculated, causing his revved-up engine to seize. Word of this encounter soon spread, and Andrea, who had been one of the rare boys from his village not to give up on his education and simply work, decided to escape the ridicule that rained down on him after this attack. I should mention not for the attack itself, but the embarrassing result of it. He headed off to Moscow, where communism finally paid off in the form of a free education for those who proved worthy. Chikatilo shot high and enrolled as a law student at Moscow State University, the Soviet Union's most prestigious education center at the time, his lofty goal being to eventually become leader of the Soviet Union. But despite achieving high grades on his entrance exam, he was rejected, something he blamed on his father's stained reputation but most likely, Chikatilo simply didn't qualify. This was a program that accepted the likes of actual future Soviet leader, the man with a literal stain on his head, Mikhail Gorbachev, after all. Disillusioned by the rejection, Chikatilo returned to the Ukraine where he pursued education and communications. This degree aided him when in his early 20s he was called upon to serve in the military and rather than suffer an experience similar to his father's, He gained a position maintaining covert KGB lines from Berlin to Moscow. During his stint in the army, Chikatilo became a card-carrying member of the Communist Party, a distinction that would rescue him later in life, getting him into semi-privileged work positions and out of extremely dicey brushes with the rest that we'll soon explore. Above all else, Chikatilo sought respect from himself and others. The fact that he could not maintain an erection weighed heavily on his self-esteem, as virility was of the utmost importance in the macho Soviet culture. To make up for the shortcoming, Chikatilo dug in deep when it came to education, achieving multiple degrees over his lifetime. After his compulsory military service was complete, he moved to the Rostov area about two and a half hours outside of Moscow and a considerable distance from his home village in the Ukraine. Home had become an intolerable place for Andrea due to the ridicule he attracted from those who felt he'd overestimated himself by attempting to qualify for law school. Compounding this were a short string of relationships that inevitably fell apart due to what had become common knowledge in the village of his impotence. Chikatilo excelled in this new environment. He studied towards a degree in literature while working as a communications engineer. In his spare time, he performed as a freelance journalist, editing and producing propaganda for a local newspaper, as well as covering community events, of which Andrea especially enjoyed when it came to youth athletics. When he was least expecting it, Chikatilo fell in love. Well, maybe maybe not love, but an amicable situation with a member of the opposite sex, Let's say. His sister introduced him to a plain, dutiful, hard-working woman in her mid-twenties who after being relentlessly shoved into situation after situation with Andrea, eventually agreed to marry him as he appeared to be put together and productive. The couple managed to produce two children, though they had to get inventive with the copulation. I won't gross you out now. There's uh, plenty of garbage over the next hill to turn your stomach. I honestly feel bad for guys who suffer from severe erectile dysfunction. That said, I'm... Uh, really struggling with not speculating how they did it here, so I, I have something prepared I was about to skip. I don't think I'm going to now that I'm talking about it out loud. I assume there was a transfer involved. Chikatilo would spontaneously ejaculate if the right set of imagined or realized circumstances were lined up without distraction in his mind. Violent sexual fantasies he'd whip up to get the old cabasa, rumbling enough to blurp out a few baby beans. <laughs> Fucking shit. Maybe I should have skipped today. eh? Kibaz is Ukrainian, though. Polish as well, I know, but it's just too hard to pass up. Too soft. You know, more like it. Springy? <laughs> All right. You feel better now, Luna? Not really. No, I don't. Chickatillo experienced a rare sense of personal and social pride when, at the age of 34, he was selected to be chairman of the regional committee for physical education and sports. This was a responsibility only those in uh, a ranked position of the Communist Party, could obtain, and afforded him small perks, like a motorcycle to drive to events. He felt special. Besides the emotional boost this title gave him, he also began to enjoy the company of the youngsters, who he now found himself around with more regularity. Chickatilla had always gotten along well with children, too well, really. He knew there was something about pubescent adolescence that aroused him, but had rarely let himself explore these feelings outside of fantasy. There was one incident where he had covertly shoved his hand down the pants of a six-year-old niece, but he quickly regathered himself and locked up whatever dark force had suggested the reflex. This had raised no alarms as the girl had been too young to even know what had happened to her. But in the gyms and the locker rooms of these giggling young boys and girls with their tight sweaty shorts and to his perverse eye at least, suggestive mannerisms such as bending down in front of him to pick up a ball, Chicatilla began to feel an unmanageable surge of dark passion bubbling within him. His position was much too public to act on these urges, but when he eventually completed his degree in literature, Andrea applied to become a teacher, and by 1970 he had given up his communications career to teach at a boarding school where Boys and girls aged thirteen and fourteen were soon at his command in the privacy of a classroom, wherein he could hold certain students back at whim for extra study. It started with little touches here and there, innocent stuff that didn't quite cross the line—at least in the early 70s of the Soviet Union. Chikatilo didn't exactly rule his classroom with an iron fist. The students quickly realized that their new mentor was aloof prone to long periods spent stuck in his own mind, staring off into space or unapologetically at certain students while indiscreetly juggling his limp genitals via pant pocket. His credentials qualified him as a candidate to rise up through the education system, but his superiors were disappointed to find that their new colleague had no interest in advancing. They noticed, along with the students, that Mr. Chickatilla was a strange character, never quite present, his eyes quick to glaze when a subject failed to interest him. It soon became quite obvious that the only thing the man who came to be known as the Goose, because of his posture, gait, and tendency to tilt his head and stare unabashed at the behinds and chests of his students, was a pervert, and boldly so. Chicatillo, while sitting with a pupil, would place a hand on their knee, or at times just reach over and grab a breast as if he were a baby or an android exploring the wonders of a brand new world. The Goose was bounced around to different schools as a result of his indiscretions, but was never outed or held responsible for the completely inappropriate behaviors as no institution wanted that kind of attention focused on it, lest they lose funding. One incident that caused his transfer consisted of a young girl being held after class and molested. Ticotillo, without warning, just started grabbing at her once they were alone. The abuse only ended when he ejaculated in response to her resistance, then rushed out of the room, locking the door behind him. The terrified student took the opportunity to jump out of a window. He left the school on his own terms after this incident, much to the relief of parents, students, and staff. Chikatilo was losing his self-control in this environment of constant temptation. At a boarding school in Rostov, where he and his family were under condition to actually live on the grounds, the man, who would later become known as the Butcher of Rostov, often roamed the halls at night, and students of the time would later recall waking up to find the goose at their door, staring at them eyes blazing and furiously rubbing at himself. One young boy, snapped from sleep when the sweaty, grunting face of an overstimulated Andre Chikatilo began motorboating the child's bare belly as he tugged at himself. The boy never reported the experience out of fear and embarrassment, but, like many others, came forward once the Ripper had finally been contained. The greatest example of Chikatilo's rise to ripping occurred on a warm day in the mid-1970s. He had initiated an impromptu field trip to a nearby reservoir for the kids to cool off in the water. They all stripped down and jumped in. Chikatilo sat shirtless on the shore, surveying the scene like a crocodile. A young girl waited past, and he whispered for her to come over to him. She responded by playfully blurting, Go away, Andre Romanovich, Chikatilo's middle name, then dove under, which prompted Chikatilo to yell out, I'm gonna catch you now! He splashed him behind her, and after a few strong strokes had cut up to the girl, who, at first, like the rest of the students present, thought the goose to be playing a game, but it soon became obvious, at least to the now isolated girl, that Mr. Chickatillo was dead serious. He grabbed her and roughly molested her breasts. He pinched and pulled at her nipples, then shoved his hand down to her genitals and aggressively did the same, causing the girl to scream out. Chickatillo whispered for the struggling 14-year-old to scream louder, and when she did, the goose stiffened and slowly tapered the poking, pulling, ripping, and pitching that had been so furious that it caused the girl physical injury. She swam back to shore sobbing as a satiated Chikatilo apathetically treaded water, some combination of the words, want, need, finally, found, echoing through his warping mind, in slavic. It's believed that Chikatilo never intended to become the monster he morphed into not long after this indiscretion. But a combination of his physical impotence, later paired with a begrudgingly accepted social flaccidity to match, and a realized remedy for both, and his barely contained sexually sadistic propensity, birthed the bloodthirsty, teeth gnashing demon that had been ripening inside of him from a young age at a paramount time in his life. Fairly normalized, at least to an outsider's point of view. Married, children, party member, educated, a culture not willing to admit it could produce the likes of what was about to tear through it. Chicatillo, the Red Ripper began his career of savagely reaping the pleasures he'd been denied by nature, his appetite for destruction well stoked by a lifetime of repression. Mm-hmm. Mr. Chicatillo. Soon voluntarily retired from teaching at the behest of his superiors and moved his family from Rostov to Shakti, a city known for mining. Its name literally translates to mines, in fact, and took on a job as a supplies clerk, a somewhat respectable job in the Soviet Union. People treated men in this position well as they had the inside track to goods and services. Chikatilo was gifted a pass or reimbursement for the buses and trains of which he found himself often waiting for, either on desolate platforms surrounded by man-made strips of forest called shelter belts that ran along the tracks or in worn out bus stops where he'd from time to time hand out little candies or pieces of gum to local ragtag children endearing himself to them hoping to groom one for a future encounter unbeknownst to cicatillo's family he had bought a small dwelling in a seedy area of shakti telling himself that he would gift it to his father but soon had decided to keep it for himself using it as a private getaway to experiment on prostitutes his newfound ability to release his sexuality through rough physical play. Its true purpose though only used once for this was to lure prospective victims to and unleash his optimal viciousness upon them. The Red Ripper did not rip from the start. He dipped his finger hesitantly into the forbidden dish for a taste, realized that this was the recipe he'd searched his entire life for, then took his time to get it right before helplessly gorging himself by the fistful the washed-out area where his shack sat wasn't entirely private. The tiny homes almost leaned against one another for support, in fact, but it had the advantage of being on an unlit lane when dark set in. People kept to themselves in places like this. To stick your nose in someone else's business was unwise, for you yourself might become the business if not careful. After acclimating himself to the neighborhood and setting the precedent of being a private man, Chickatilla pounced. In late December of 1978, he cashed in on the grooming he'd slowly performed on a nine-year-old girl. Now, in the beginning, I warned you that my coverage of this dark topic would not be victim-sensitive. The reason for this being that there were too many to cover. Another being that the names are too difficult for me to pronounce. If I had a dark sense of humor, I might say I wanted to avoid butchering them. But this is a high-class pot, so I won't stoop to that. Yes, uh, that's a joke to the dummy listening in the back. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who just scoffed, and am aware of what I just did. Humor tends to darken along with the subject matter. Big shout out to all the backup I've been getting from paramedics, cops, and healthcare workers on that note. By the way, military people. That being said, with this first murder, and maybe a couple of more to come in the finale, I will introduce the victims somewhat. I just can't do them all. Less is more when describing the Ripper's crimes. Anyways... You don't want to become desensitized, or like me, eyes bleached from the horror, a subconscious so saturated with the images of terrified corpses that a good sleep requires dreamlessness and a lot of marijuana? Weed? Yelena Zakanova had finished up her usual post-school routine of attending dance class, coming home to eat, then skating on the patches of icy road in her neighborhood with friends when at around 6 p.m. she announced that she was going to see if she could catch the kind man from the bus stop who sometimes gave her gum. She promised her friends she'd get them some too if he had extras. Dressed in her little red coat, she headed off into the growing darkness to meet up with what soon would unveil itself not to be a kindly stranger at all, but a wolf. Yelena was last seen alive at a bus stop. A boy claimed to have observed her conversing with an older man who carried a briefcase, and wore a dark overcoat. On his head sat a beaver-lamb hat. The two seemed to be coming to an agreement before they headed down Soviet Street, the girl walking a few feet behind the man. Chicatillo's shack sat down a darkened side street named Mezevoy Lane. They entered the dwelling unnoticed. Once Chikatilo had the girl inside, he locked the door behind her. Then, for the first time, let the Ripper come out to play. Andre Chikatilo, though I've described him as aloof and distant at times, was only this way when engaged in an activity that did not stimulate him. He would put himself on autopilot when bored and drift deep into his own mind to live out dark fantasy. His mind, namely his memory in reality, was impeccable. He could recite long strings of numbers if challenged, and much later, when asked to recall his crimes, did not hesitate to retrieve them from his memory banks where he'd stored and maintained them over his twelve-year run as an elusive killer. The memory of this first murder had been preserved in mint condition, and when he was finally doomed, Chicotillo shared it with the world as if he were imparting knowledge of a great treasure that he kept secret for an excruciatingly long time. Quote We entered my bungalow. I turned on the light as soon as I had locked the door and immediately pounced on her, crushing her underneath me. I knocked her to the floor. The girl was frightened and began screaming. I put my hands over her mouth and began to rip off her clothes from below, exposing her body. I unbuttoned her coat. She tore herself away, but there was nothing she could do against me. I lay on top of her, pressing my whole body down on her body. After I had pulled my pants down, I began to rub my sexual organ against her perineum, but it did not result in an erection of my sexual member, and I was unable to insert it into her vagina. But the desire to satisfy myself eclipsed all reason, and I wanted to achieve this by any means possible. Her screams excited me even more. Laying on top of her and rocking back and forth as if an imitation of the sexual act, I reached for my knife and began to stab her with it. I had an ejaculation, as in a natural climax, and I began putting my sperm into her vagina with my hands. With my hands, I crawled inside her sexual organs. I felt like ripping and touching everything. She gasped. I strangled her. And this brought a kind of relief. When I realized that I had killed her, I got up, dressed, and decided to get rid of the corpse. End quote. diligently cleans up. He scrubs some blood from the floor, then pulls the dead girl's pants up, a task of which he's familiar as he has a daughter of his own. He buttons her coat, not to protect against the cold, obviously, but so that it doesn't hang off of the body, which he collects in his arms along with the school bag and creeps out into the pitch blackness of Mezzavoy Lane. He sets the body down for a moment to get a better grip, inadvertently marking the snow with blood as he does so, then, with purpose, crosses the lane and heads down to a river that runs behind the shacks of his neighbors. He pushes the girl into the current, then tosses her school bag in after her. He's soon sleeping soundly, something that Yelena's friends and family will not be able to do for quite some time. It takes two days of searching before the little girl's red coat is spotted from a bridge on Christmas Eve 1978. The body hasn't traveled far. Investigators initially believe the cause of death to be an accidental drowning, but are forced to reconsider when the stab wounds and extensive sexual injuries are discovered. Andrea Chicatillo almost immediately becomes a person of interest. Investigators discover blood near his home and are soon aware of his questionable behavior as a teacher, along with the fact that he's been spending nights alone on Mesavoy Lane while lying to his wife about being away on business. Despite all this, Ticotillo isn't considered a serious suspect. He's a card-carrying Communist Party member, not to mention a well-educated man with a wife and family. So, you know, so what? If he spends the odd night in the slums letting off steam with a, quote, woman of questionable morals? When it's discovered that a man who, as a minor, raped and murdered a young girl lives in one of the homes of which the body is discovered behind. The investigation turns its eye entirely onto him. And despite the fact that this man has an airtight alibi, he is eventually arrested. I should tell you that this, this man did commit murder and rape as a minor, and he served 16 years of hard labor and was released. I know that sounds surprising in, uh, you know, communist Soviet Union time that they would even release him, but they did. He killed, they used him for labor and then they, re- they released him. This man, as I said, had an airtight alibi. He is eventually arrested and swiftly executed, a bullet to the back of the head for the heinous murder after some ultra-shady and aggressive police work yields evidence and sees all those who support the man's alibi change their tune. Chicotillo knows that he's literally dodged a bullet, so he lays low, digesting the experience of his first kill like a gluttonous snake hiding in the weeds for safety while its swelled belly slowly breaks down the unfortunate creature that it's managed to swallow whole. It'll be two years before he allows the devil inside to resurface, and when he does, he's certain to do it far from where he sleeps, and with a plan so clean that it can be initiated over, over, and over, and over, and over, and over, and over. All right, everybody, Zipix Toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix Nicotine Toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix Toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great, long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zippix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, <laughs> uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape, where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks, if you're not a nicotine user, or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zippix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zippix Nicotine Infused Toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did, must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zipmore smoke less with Zippix, nicotine toothpicks. It had been two years since Chikatilo unleashed the Ripper inside on an unsuspecting nine-year-old girl, and although the unveiling of this dark potential had deeply disturbed him, it had also liberated him in some way. Well, in all ways. You see, Andrea was a meek man outwardly for the most part. His wife wore the pants and had even on occasion accompanied her husband to work to confront superiors who he felt were picking on him, but didn't have the courage to stand up to himself. This man, who had become accustomed to being ignored, made fun of, humiliated, and disrespected by peers whom he knew he was mentally superior to, now had a secret to hang his hat on internally. Despite all their claims of his incompetence, he knew, deep down, that he was special. Not special in the classic way, gifted with personality, talent, and wherewithal. No, Chikatilo was special in that he was a freak of nature, the antithesis of gifted. He had parts missing, and though he'd spent the better part of his life walking around feeling like his soul were made of Swiss cheese, he now felt full, beyond full, bursting, with a passion that he later described as having turned from pink to red after committing his first heinous murder. His new job as a supply clerk may have been beneath his education and pay grade, but it had the payoff of affording Chicatillo plenty of reason to travel across, in, and around the bustling metropolis of Rostov, where he'd often spend his night sleeping on benches or in parks with vagrants, prostitutes, and runaways. Later he would claim that exposure to the seedy underbelly of society made him lose respect for humanity and inspired him to inflict unspeakable acts upon the women who would, quote, follow him around like dogs. This justification that he were cleaning up society would almost make some sort of disgusting sense if not for the children and teenagers that he preyed upon as well. Chickatillo always carried a briefcase with him. His fellow employees used to joke that it was simply a part of his costume, as he rarely did his work properly. They even put a brick in it one day when he wasn't looking, that to their glee he carried around, apparently without noticing for the rest of his shift. My bet is that he did notice, but just didn't want to deal with the embarrassment of acknowledging the prank. This briefcase was in his hand as per usual as he read a newspaper outside of the city public library one afternoon in early September of nineteen eighty one. He had managed to this point to keep his dark desires under wraps. The memory of what he'd done to the girl in the little red coat had taken the edge off whenever he retrieved it for personal use. But on this particular day, He could not resist taking steps towards obtaining a new file for his depraved catalog when he found himself in the path of a lone 16-year-old girl who, using his experience in speaking to teenagers from his time as a teacher, Chicatillo managed to convince into accompanying him to a nearby beach where he promised to buy her some food and drink. To his surprise, the girl agreed, and soon they were walking away from the noise of the street and into the woods that lay between downtown and the beach. As they walked, Chickatilla's friendly banter soon tapered off and the animal inside emerged, glazing its host's eyes and slacking its jaws if preparing to devour something. Large. The girl stood no chance. The ripper pounced, dragged her into the woods, beat on her mercilessly and attempted rape. This inevitable failed attempt enraged him further, so he grabbed a six-foot-long stick to serve as a replacement, all the while stuffing dirt into the girl's mouth to muffle the screams. Once satisfied, Chickatilla choked the girl to death. Then took to biting off pieces of her. He then opened up her stomach with a knife from his briefcase and disemboweled her. Many of Chicatillo's victims were ripped at as they died and post-mortem. He took pleasure in exposing the sexual organs of females. He nibbled on them, enjoying how, pink and springy they were. Elated to have killed again, he performed a dance around his victim, whooping and celebrating the kill. In his mind, he fancied himself a Soviet partisan, One of his heroes, who, rather than be taken by the Germans, had gone to the woods to commit themselves to poaching Nazis during the war. Now, like I've said a few times, I can't cover all of the Ripper's crimes, but I can give a really good idea of what he was up to during his time as a serial killer. I'm actually trying to be sensitive, but it's near impossible with this case. I just need to show you how high the bar is on the depravity scale for the Ripper, so that you can appreciate the incredible force of evil that I believe spurned him on. Go ahead and call it mental illness. Many have. And maybe that's true. But the truth is that Chickatilla was able to consistently kill in this horrific fashion for a decade without alarming his family or co-workers. The authorities believed they had a madman on the loose, more likely a group of madmen, and we'll get into that in a moment. But the reality was that they had one man who wasn't losing his mind when committing these killings. He was finding it. After this murder, Chikatilo takes a short break, but then unleashes. By 1984, he has killed close to 30 people. His appetite for murder is insatiable. In one case, he begins a conversation with a 13-year-old girl as they walk the same path through a man-made wood by the train tracks, a shelter belt. As they walk and talk, Chickatilla simply begins to guide the girl off the path, where he overpowers her, takes some rope from his case, ties her up, and then stabs her over 50 times, being sure to insert his blade in spots that won't immediately kill her, eventually choosing one spot where he plunges the blade in and out, simulating intercourse. The girl's screams bring him to orgasm. He's not just killing females. It doesn't matter what sex or age. It isn't about how they look. It's about whether he can manipulate them into a compromising position and overpower them. He begins killing young boys. One, his youngest victim, is only 7 years old. Bodies are being discovered all along the train lines, hastily covered with branches and newspaper, bloody clothing usually found wrapped in a ball nearby. Police are under extreme pressure to begin solving some of these murders. So they do. They begin pinning the crimes on the, quote, mentally deficient. They even title the murder spree, The Case of Fools, believing that a crew of marauding indigents have banded together to satisfy their depraved needs. More and more often, boys are being discovered with obvious signs of brutal rape in their bodies not to mention in many cases the general having been torn off. Later it's discovered they suffered this torture via Chikatilo's teeth while still alive and bound. The result of this horrible new trend is that suspected homosexuals are taken in and brutally interrogated. It's said that at least one suspect commits suicide while in custody, and another dies by the methods of extraction authorities are using to elicit confessions. The problem, of course, is that the murders continue while these men are being held. The big guns of the KGB are called in to take over the case once it's finally accepted that the killing isn't going to stop, no matter how many innocent people they pin the blame on. Bunch of fucking apes. The clothing that has been collected from the murder scenes is finally analyzed, and traces of saliva and sperm, all matching the same type, are collected. The type, AB, is apparently fairly rare, so this is a significant leap. A profiler is brought in, and to his credit, unlike so many profilers before and after him, nails it. He suggests their suspect will be male, between the ages of 25 and 50, close to 6 feet, judging by a size 10 shoe print found near a fresh murder scene, suffering from sexual inadequacy and venting his frustration on his victims. Armed with this profile, a massive operation begins. Operation Shelter Belt. Officers begin questioning every man fitting the profile. By the time they're finally through with this approach, they will have taken down the names and details of over half a million men. In the process, they solve over a 1,000 unrelated crimes, including 95 murders, 140 aggravated assaults, and 245 rapes, a fact used to maybe smooth over just how long it takes for them to get their man. Chicotillo, under the nose of this now organized investigative unit, soon commits what, in my opinion, is his most terrifying crime of them all. He convinces a woman who he's actually had an affair with from time to time back at his shack on Mezavoy Lane, an affair that tapers off due to Andrea's impotence, of course, to come with him for a picnic. He suggests she bring along her 11-year-old daughter and that he'll have a doll for the girl if she does so. The woman doesn't fit the typical profile of Chickatillo's targets, as she is familiar with them, but he feels confident that she hasn't told anyone about the relationship as they were both married at the time of their affair. Besides, he had been careful not to divulge his last name to her. The woman agrees, and on May twenty-fifth, 1984, she steps onto a predetermined train with her daughter, and the two travel blindly until eventually spotting Chicatillo who boards from another stop. The group draws no attention when they exit at a secluded station out in the country. They appear to be a family. The little girl happily playing with the doll Chicatillo had brought as promised when they finally exit onto a deserted platform and back into the bright, fresh spring day. The trio are soon deep into the woods and sitting down in a small deserted clearing for their picnic. The woman has been drinking heavily up to this point, and once lunch is over, tells her daughter to go off to play. The 11-year-old does as she's told. She heads into the woods out of sight of the two adults. She's been in this position before, unfortunately, and knows better than to linger or even spy lest she see something she can't unsee. Chickatillo gets naked along with the woman and attempts to make love, but fails. It's a foregone conclusion that this will happen, but he uses the shameful experience to trigger his rage and the Ripper inside. On this occasion, his prospective victim actually laughs and says, quote, You call yourself a man? It's more than enough. Chickatilla reaches into his briefcase and pulls out a kitchen knife. As his naked and inebriated date continues to giggle at his predicament, the Ripper, matter-of-factly, sticks the blade into the side of her head. It doesn't sink in deep enough to kill the woman, and she lets loose a scream that alarms every living thing in the surrounding area. The young girl drops her doll and comes running as birds shoot into the sky. Meanwhile, blood spurts out of her mother's head wound and onto the bare chest of Chicotillo, who goes back into his case and produces a hammer that he uses to bludgeon the screaming woman to death with. Once convinced he's done enough, the Ripper retrieves his blade and stands up. He's naked, spattered with blood, and sporting one of his extremely rare semi-erections. The sound of whimpering breaks the deafening silence as replaces the screams and he turns to it. The guest of honor is standing at the edge of the wood, petrified and aghast by what she's witnessed. This here is why I don't believe in divine intervention, that is, unless it's whoever gets there first. If so, the devil couldn't have arranged a more desperate or frightening predicament for the little girl. Ticotillo likely smiles sadistically before taking off and running towards his prime target. This is truly a scene from a horror movie. It takes a moment for the innocent to register that she's in incredible danger as her mother's killer closes the gap of open field between them at an alarming rate. But soon she's tearing through the woods, sobbing and begging for the bare-naked bloody man with a knife and hammer to stop chasing her. It's no use. Chicotillo easily makes up the distance and pounces, inflicting his cruel attacks, mauling, stabbing, biting, thrusting. When he finally allows her to die, the Ripper manages to take things a step further, After removing her eyes, a tradition by this point, Chickadilla believes that the images of one's killer would imprint on the eyes of the dead. He decapitates the girl, likely running around, whooping and dancing with the head gripped by the hair, swinging from his hand like a trophy of war, before tossing it unceremoniously into the bush. The two bodies are discovered much later, when another party of picnickers notice a rank smell permeating from all around them as they sit for lunch. Late into 1984, after a summer and fall where the Ripper had been killing at a rate of nearly once a week, authorities come unbearably close to stopping the carnage, when a plan to saturate major train stops with a visible police presence and post-undercover officers at the more rural stops pays off, the plan being to scare the unsub away from larger, more difficult-to-monitor stations and limit him to easily patrol desolate waiting platforms. Chicotillo earns the attention of a plainclothes detective as he makes his way from solo female to solo female at a mildly busy train waiting area. What strikes the officer as concerning is the look in the man's eye when he spots a lone girl. It's predatory. Also, the man fits the profile with his height, age, and obvious sexual frustrations as he nearly explodes when his advances are denied by the multiple women he interacts with. The officer waits patiently until he observes a crime. Chikatilo finds a woman willing to trade pleasure for cash and begins groping her openly on a bench. The officer intervenes and soon demands to see his suspect's briefcase. The contents are disturbing enough to bring the man in for questioning. Chikatilo has a knife, rope, and a jar of vaseline. Almost equally disturbing is the piece of identification he produces that shows him to be a freelance employee of the police. This is a rarely spoke of detail when it comes to Chikatilo. He was privy to the details of the investigation against him. Being a man who often rode public transportation, not to mention a Communist Party member of some esteem, he had been given the card with the thought that he may be of service to Operation Belt. Another set of eyes. We'll never know how deeply involved Chikatilo was with his own investigation, but many believe he had significant intel, that he may have even been a low-level spy for the KGB, which likely helped him wriggle out of what was to come. If true. Chikatilo was brought in for questioning. Detectives feel that they may have their man. He's sweating profusely under scrutiny. The profile of the killer matches up to a T with their new suspect. A blood sample is obtained and sent for analysis. Chikatilo is placed in a cell with a mole. He's a doctor, and Chikatilo pumps the man for information regarding the sample he has given. To the disappointment of investigators, the test comes back negative. Chicatilla is visibly surprised by the result, but internally chalks it up to being an example of what he's believed up to this point in regard to his ability to elude capture. He's being protected by a dark force. The same force has been driving him to kill. He thinks of it as a black hood that exists invisibly over his face when he commits murder. In reality, the failure to match Chikatilo's blood to the evidence is a result of him being a non-secretor. His blood type differs from his saliva and sperm, a condition that despite what many believe, I've heard it hyperbolically claimed that this is a a one-in-a-million shot, actually exists in around 15% of the human population. This fact was unknown at the time, and Chikatilo walks. Well, at least, from the crimes of the so-called Butcher of Rostov. A deeper look into their man yields that he's suspected of having stolen a car battery from his work. A serious crime in communist Russia. Chikatilo is tried for this theft and eventually sentenced to a year in prison. He opts for hard labor in order to get out early. A choice that the still-strapping man of almost 50 will soon celebrate. He's released after three months and returns home to enjoy the new year of 1985 with his family. He spends the late evening of December 31st, 1984 silently running his victims-to-date through his mind, toasting each as he sips through multiple glasses of vodka. Chikatilo lays low after his release from jail. He knows that the investigation into the Rostov murders has reached a fever pitch. He manages to gain employment as a supervisor of the metals department for a locomotive factory, a job that takes him away from Rostov on business fairly frequently. He's now spending time in the big city of Moscow and surrounding area on assignment. This is fresh territory, but he's still leery. Despite his attempt at hibernation, he kills two 18-year-old females to present as easy targets during this time. One, a mentally disabled girl, who asks him for alcohol at a train station and ends up agreeing to take a walk with a seemingly harmless, bespectacled man who soon turns into a raging animal once in a lonely wooded area he claims to be near his dacha. Her body will be discovered years later, when Chikatel leads investigators to her skeleton that lays beneath an old green raincoat. The bodies aren't appearing in Rostov anymore, and the investigation relaxes slightly. Chicotillo does not kill for the entirety of 1986. He'll later share that this is as a result of his new co-workers toasting him on his 50th birthday, a gesture of respect and camaraderie that leaves him in a cheerful mood for quite some time. That's all it took, (laughs) Andre? From 1987 to 1990, the killing ramps back up. Chicotillo brings a woman back to his daughter's apartment in one instance and violently murders her after a failed attempt at sex. He cuts up the woman and disposes of her body the next day, spending the night with the corpse as he didn't want to raise suspicion leaving the apartment to enter the quiet night, where the woman's screams had most definitely been heard, but luckily for him had not been reported due to the terrible neighborhood his daughter lived in, where screams were as commonplace as the cries of a baby. He lures young boys to the woods and away from train and bus stations with the promise of a hot meal at his non-existent dacha. One victim, a tiny 16-year-old boy named Sasha, is too tempting for Chikatilo to pass on when he spots a young man, who he mistakes for a child, walking alone in downtown Rostov. Of this murder, Chikatilo later shared some detail. He was proud of it. Quote, I was walking home from a building supply store when I got to Comsomol Square. I saw the young boy ahead of me in the school uniform, holding a briefcase in one hand. I caught up with him. There was no one around. Next to the bridge is a grove. The boy was so little that I silently took him by the hand and led him into the grove, just a few feet away from the road. I struck him multiple times with my penknife. This was the only time that not a single word passed between me and my victim. Cars had streamed by as the boy called out for help, the noise of the engines drowning out his pleas as he died. Chickatilla removes the boy's genitals, places them in a bag, and buries them near the body. All right. <clears throat> he doesn't explain why he did that. Who cares by this point? There's more, many, many more, at least 56, and maybe as many as 75, the details of which I'm too tired to share, as I'm sure you can appreciate by this point in the tale of Andre Chikatilo. This was a three-part series at one point, but I'd like you to come back for future episodes, and although at times it may seem I can't get enough of sharing dark topics, of this killer's crimes, I'm near spent. Finally, after a particularly brutal murder committed by the aging Chicatello, his black hood fails to protect him. It's a rainy day at Leskov Station outside of Rostov when the tired, disheveled-now-54-year-old emerges from the trees of the surrounding shelter belt following the vicious killing of a 22-year-old female of whom he'd taken a biting off the tip of her tongue and both nipples. He may have bitten off more flesh, judging by the crime scene photos. He later admits to swallowing everything, something he claimed was a new habit and a way to intensify the experience. Just to keep you in the loop. Chikatilo washes his hands off at a water pump then walks up to a circle of mushroom pickers who have started a small fire on the waiting platform to keep warm. An undercover officer sits on a bench nearby. He closely observes the strange man as he addresses the group, complaining about mushrooms and the lack thereof in the forest. The officer's sharp eye takes in some blood on the man's cheek and earlobe. Sticks and dirt are evident on his back and cap. On his finger is an obvious injury. It's later confessed to be a bite mark Chikatilo suffered from the teeth of his previous victim another 16-year-old boy who fought him like no other. Broke the finger with his bite, in fact. The officer takes down Chicatillo's information as the train of which the man claims to have come back from a short walk to catch approaches. There's really no reason to hold the suspicious character who claims to have stumbled in the bush, so he's allowed to catch his train. It's not until a week later or so that this interaction throws up major red flags when the mutilated body of his latest victim is discovered. Chicatillo had been butchering far from Rostov for the most part since his close call in 84. Some of the bodies, bodies that matched the mutilations inflicted upon what would turn out to be his final target, have been left so mangled out and around Moscow that at least one was filed away as being the result of a farming vehicle having run over a sleeping unfortunate in a field. When the list of suspicious persons is checked for those who are interviewed in the area of this newest crime scene, Chicatillo's name jumps off the page, as many officers have been convinced he was the ripper back in eighty four, before the blood test cleared him. A small group of officers is sent out to scout Chickatillo's apartment and put a tail on him. It doesn't take long before they observe their suspect exiting his home with a stein of ale. Apparently he's off to the bar to refill it. It soon becomes obvious, once Chickatillo is refilled, that he's not ready to go back home just yet. He approaches a young boy and tries to engage him in conversation. The boy wisely moves away from the now haggard and often drunk ripper, who moves seamlessly on to another young man he spots down the street. The officers have seen enough. They screech up in their unmarked vehicle and take Chikatilo down. There's video of this arrest. Chikatilo appears inebriated and disheveled. He allows his hands to be cuffed behind him without incident. In the back of the car on the way to the station, he speaks twice out loud. He attempts to downplay the arrest and attribute it to a conflict with his superiors at work. Quote, This just goes to show you again that it doesn't pay to argue with the boss. He's met with stony silence by the officers there will be no humoring. They've been overworked and embarrassed by this man's actions for a decade. Just before they reached the station, Chicotillo sighs and reasons aloud. Still, all things considered, you can't argue with the boss. It took some time, but the evidence began to pile up and Chicotillo started to crack. A proper test was done on his saliva to match him to the sperm this time around. A boot and a knife were recovered from his home, each matching evidence from his crime scenes, one in which he'd left a boot print and another where he chipped a knife while stabbing and slashing Chickatillo is placed in cells with different planted prisoners in the hopes he'll open up he wisely stays mute mainly because he fears he'll be recognized as the ripper suspect and murdered the doctor who created the accurate profile of the ripper in the early days of his spree is called in to try and help get a confession he spends a lot of time with Chickatillo explaining that what he has done will be considered an act of insanity so he should not fear the death penalty. Chickatilla breaks down after many hours of coaxing. He pens a letter to the Prosecutor General that reads, My inconsistent behavior should not be misconstrued as an attempt to avoid responsibility for any acts I have committed. One could argue that even after my arrest, I was not fully aware of their dangerous and serious nature. My case is peculiar to me alone. It is not fear of responsibility that makes me act this way, but my inner psychic and nervous tension. I am prepared to give testimony about the crimes, but please do not torment me with their details, for my psyche would not be able to bear it. It never even entered my mind to conceal anything from the investigation. Everything which I have done makes me shudder. I only feel gratitude towards the investigated bodies for having captured me. The butcher of Rostov confirms that he is responsible for the 34 murders officially attributed to him at this time. He even goes a step further and starts confessing to 20 plus more. This sparks a kind of body exhumation tour. There's a t-shirt. Chicotillo, USSR Body Exhumation Tour 1991. (laughs) With all the cities and towns on the back. Chicotillo was enjoying the attention. Deep down, this is his greatest achievement in life, after all. He killed all these people over a decade and existed as a seemingly normal Soviet citizen right in the center of all the fear he'd put out into the world during his run. Investigators are blown away by the man's recall. He leads them into wooded area after wooded area directly to the skeletal remains of missing children and women, long forgotten by all but their families. Eager to show off a superior mind, citizen Ch, as he's to be known throughout trial, passes all of his psychological examinations with ease, though a true mastermind would have realized he was sabotaging himself. Chickatilla will soon attempt to convince the people that he's insane in order to avoid the death penalty but it'll prove to be too little, too late. The trial begins on April 14th, 1992. A cage sits in the courtroom, a massive setting that's filled with family and friends of the many victims. Chikatilo was led into the cage from a stairway beneath the courtroom. It's chaos. Officers are running to hold the people back. Women are fainting. Everyone is screaming at the now bald Chikatilo, his head shaved to prevent the spread of lice. Chikatilo looks every part the psychopath with his new look. He wildly takes in the room and those in it, swinging his head around, eyes full of fear as if suddenly surrounded by vengeful spirits. He rocks and giggles crazily to himself, licks his lips and clicks his teeth as the screams and moans echo around him. It's a circus. Sometimes Chikatilo sits quietly, appearing to be fine, but more often he plays to the press, acting like a madman, hoping to earn the sympathy of the people who follow the trial closely from home in this recently collapsed Soviet Union that's overly eager to flex its new freedoms. The trial is a macabre celebration of a new era. Never has there been a trial quite so sensational. O.J. Simpson, you may say, but did O.J. ever take his pants off and start screaming about his impotence, slapping at himself and declaring how useless his penis is in front of the victim's families and the world? Ticotillo was invited to speak, and he rambles incoherently for two hours. The audience wails and screams at him as he does so. Here's an example of how he was speaking in court. Some of the questions he was asked to answer came directly from the families. An absurd circumstance. Question Why did you carry Vaseline around with you? Chikatilo. To use his shaving cream. Why did you prefer young boys? It made no difference. What did you do with the victim's severed organs? I threw them on the road, stomped on them, mixed them in with dirt. I wasn't thinking about anything. What did you do with the watches, jewelry? Chikatilo later answers this question in a horrible way by saying, Should I remember if they had crabs, too? Did you ever think of the pain you were causing your victims? When you were killing boys, didn't you ever stop to think of your own son? It never entered my mind. Chikatilo goes on to say he considered his victims like enemy aircraft. At one point an officer puts a hand over his face as Chikatilo calmly details his crimes. He soon up to a chair and appears to burst into tears. The mothers and grandmothers in the crowd cannot be calmed down. Jugs of water are brought out and officers begin literally trying to cool things, taking big mouthfuls and spitting sprays of water over the frothing mob. The scene is so completely fucked up. Chickatilla keeps pushing his insanity act. He complains from his cage that the guards have been beating him, which may have been true, but the details of the beating are clearly fabricated. Citizen Ch claims that he's pregnant, and the guards have been targeting their clubs on his swollen belly. Before Chikatilo can be sentenced, he survives an assassination attempt. A man gets within six feet and hurls a heavy piece of metal that narrowly misses the ripper's bald head. It clangs noisily off the wall, and the prisoner is escorted to the safety of the dungeon downstairs as chaos erupts yet again. The people are flipping over benches and running towards the cage, trying to rip him apart. Finally, after months of this madness, the judge lays down his ruling. Chikatilo looks skyward as if in uncertain prayer. The sentence is the harshest available. Death by gunshot. The crowd begs for a more brutal punishment. Someone suggests he be ripped apart by wolves. Chicotillo screams at the room that he's been framed. He begs that he not be shot in the head so that the Japanese can study his brain. As he's yanked from the cage, he appears to lunge at a guard with his teeth. The black hood removed and no reason to act any longer. The ripper takes a final slash. An appeal fails, and the sentence is carried out. In a soundproof cell, Andre Chicotillo escapes the world via gunshot. A fatal wound that's expertly administered behind his right ear. Some conspiracists claim that he was kept alive and sold to the U.S. or the Japanese for research. That's a nice thought, to me. Chicatillo chained to a bed somewhere, the top of his skull missing, his brain exposed, a group of men hovering around clipboards as images of death play on a screen before the drooling test case. That's what he wanted. Some last words from Andre Romanovich Chicatillo. And now my brain should be taken apart piece by piece and examined so there wouldn't be any others like me. recommended reading if you want the whole story comrade Chicatello, the psychopathology of russia's notorious serial killer was a fascinating read as for me i'm finally done with the red ripper if he's not the worst then he's at least one of the most vicious men to ever walk the earth the images from his crime scenes are certainly proof of that i don't recommend checking them out but half of you likely will dark topic is an 1159 media production To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch, or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com.